Father, we praise you for another day. We praise you for the gift of life, and we praise you for your grace that you sustain us with every day. And I thank you for um, your word and your spirit that work together to help guide us in this life. We pray that you would do that even this morning as we try to understand your passions, the things that you are excited about, the things that you want us to be excited about. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our biblical decision-making series, we're on to lesson three. Uh, Let me grab my handouts, I almost forgot. Will, I'll have you pass these out, please. Thank you, sir. All right, while he's passing it out, let's just do a quick review. Remember, a lot of people, when they're thinking about how to make a decision well, and they say as Christians, I want to make it within God's will, and there's this constant anxiety about whether I'm going to hit the dot, like that specific plan for God's for Paul's life, and I've got to make sure I don't get out of that. And that's what we've been trying to say is that's impossible to hit. <laughs> because that kind of thinking leads to this. One, a couple of different options. You could say, well, there was what God wanted, but here's what I did, and that was somehow outside of God's will. And we say that that's not possible if we mean by God's will, his plans. Then there's also this idea if you're trying to hit that dot, you, some people's view of the way God works is that, well, he has this, all these contingent plans if I screw things up. Well, that doesn't work that way because God never wrangles his hands. He has a plan and he's guiding it to his ends. We said when thinking about God's will, for us, our most important concern should be his precepts. What does he teach us in the Bible? And that is the aspect of God's will that we should be anxious about. If there's anything to be anxious about, is following what he tells us to do. And we said that his precepts, those are his commands, and they help us know what our goals and actions and attitudes and perspective in life should be. Then we said, though, there is this aspect of his plans. And his plans are all things that God has planned from before time began, Nothing exists outside of this big blue circle. Nothing happens outside of God's plans. And that includes our wise or foolish decisions. Nothing is outside of God's plans. So even when I make a dumb decision, that was still God's plan. God's still orchestrating. He tells us in his word to go searching for uh, where's my what? His precepts. He tells us in his word to do his will, to understand his will, to abide in his will. And all those kinds of times he's talking about this because it's impossible to not to ever be outside of this aspect of his will. But he also never tells us to go searching for this outside part because all of it, it like he's not going to sit and say, okay, you, you're looking for a job, and you pray, God, tell me the job. It's just not the way God operates. He says, I've got my word here for you that will guide you in your goals, your attitudes, your actions, and your worldview. What else do you need, he's saying. You've got me 
to help you, guide you with this. All right, and then last week we talked about his providence. And remember, all three of these Ps so far are aspects of God's will. We said his providence is how he governs and provides for making these plans come to pass. That makes sense? Now, here's what's interesting. Even, um, even in our bad or unwise decisions, he has directed things. He's governed things, provided for things to go in the direction that he wants it to go. Yet, we're still responsible to make decisions that honor him. Right? We are responsible to make decisions that, let me say something new, that he would be happy with. That God would be happy with. And that leads me to the fourth P of God's will. Uh, well, how did I miss a slide? Oh, his passions. His passions. So like his providence, I think this is really just a category in a sense under precepts. But I want to distinguish it because I think it will help us immensely as we're trying to make decisions. So... What do I mean by his passions? God's passions, this is God's attitude towards things. It's his disposition. Now, in other words, it's what God's passionate about. And by passionate, I don't mean, by passion, I don't mean mood swings. God, Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means God does not have mood swings. It says in Genesis 6 and in 1 Samuel 15 that God is not a man that he should change his mind. He does not have these kinds of mood swings. So when I'm talking about God's passions, I don't mean that he can somehow, that he's volatile, that he changes in that sense. This is, in one sense, as we look at several of his passions, this is what God always is driven by, okay? He, all of them at the same time. So let me give you some examples of what I mean. What is God passionate about? Maybe before I do that, let me ask you, because I have a feeling you'll hit some that are on the next slide. Don't look at the handout like you know. Don't cheat him. What is God passionate about? Chris. He is. He is passionate about the things he has made. The creatures, the people, even, even the earth he's made. He's passionate about that. Yes. What else? Matt. His own glory. Yes, his own glory. God is passionate about his own glory. Sam. He's passionate about what we do. He's concerned about it. Exactly. What else? All right. Oh, Andrew. Ah, preserving his holiness. Yes. Good. All right, so let's, that, you're thinking down the right train. And see how this is different. It's, not, it's really not different than his precepts, but it's bigger picture. Because I think when we think about his precepts, we think about do's and don'ts, don't we? We need to think bigger picture. So first of all, he is, and this is Matt nailed this one, he's passionate about his glory. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is, and I would say, incredibly, if not most, 
excited about his own glory. And now, that to some people seems a little egotistical. But you want the highest being to be concerned about that. Because if he was concerned about someone else's glory, then we should pivot and worship that. Right? Matt? Matt? Want any yeah. glory, that would be terrible. Right. The reason why it's terrible for us to want our own glory is because we're not the most glorious. There you go. Does that make sense? Perfect. The <laughs> Hey, we've got a job opening. <laughs> okay. Um, I got a problem. The clock that no longer works, it, it's not been replaced. So we're going to be here for a while, folks. Oh, this is true. <laughs> okay, next one. And this is related to his glory. God is passionate about his name and his word. It says in Psalm 138.2, this is the psalmist saying, I bow down toward your holy temple. And give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you, God, have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. Now, when we say his name, what we do not mean by that, what God does not mean by that, is somehow the word, the name Yahweh or Jehovah in itself by somehow saying the name that that's what he's talking about. Like what he means when you talk about in the Old Testament, we do this too. Um, the, the, the way we use it today is slipping my mind all of a sudden, but like it's our reputation. What was that word? Like in the name of the law. That, that, I knew there's a couple of phrases we use that use the word name in the same way. It's talking about, right, Andrew, about reputation. God's fame is associated with himself. So when you say, in the name of Jesus, amen, you're doing more than just saying, like a, you're not, it's not a, a, a an incantation. It's not a, Hocus pocus, say this phrase. It's saying in the, everything that Jesus represents, let it be so. When you say in Jesus' name, amen, you're saying in everything that is bound up with Jesus, in his fame, in his name, and who he is, and why he can do, why I can even pray, let it be so. That's what it means. So, anyway, his name and his word is something he's passionate about. Okay? What's another thing? He's passionate about love. He's passionate about love. You know, how many of you have this read at your wedding? 1 Corinthians 13, at the very end, Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest of these is love. <clears throat> I prefer the King James Version. Not playing your games. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
greatest of these is charity, is what the King James says. God is. I know, right, right. It's his. Does that mean you have a charity language? Which is your charity language, right? It gets really. Conf- it gets really confusing. Yes, we're getting highly distracted, y'all. So we're thinking about what are the things that God is passionate about. And I'm going to bring this to decision-making in a bit. Keep this one in mind. God says, love is the greatest thing. Even for himself, he says the greatest commandment is to love him and to love others. Love is the greatest thing. Here's another thing that God is passionate about, the sanctity of human life. Psalm 8, 3 through 5. This is mind-blowing. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And we can look at Psalm 139. It says, fearfully and wonderfully I am made. Right? We can look at all kinds. In Genesis, when... Uh, um, Noah and them get off the ark. He says, you don't kill because man's made in the image of God. In Genesis 127, man is made in the image of God. God is passionate as, this is what, what uh, Chris was getting at. He's passionate about us. He's made us. And really, you would ask yourself, well, why? Well, because he made us in his image, which means we are to be a reflection of who he is. And to the extent that we don't do that, <laughs> now... That, that is ruining his reputation. Justice. God is also very passionate about justice. If you've not read the ma- major and minor prophets, so you go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. After that, you start hitting these prophets. If you read those prophets, you will see that justice, caring for the poor, not extorting people, bribery, all of these things he is against. And it's all under, and he uses the word justice. And right here, if you ask what he's passionate about, he even says it. I love justice, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Next thing God's passionate about. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a sample list. God is just. Now, it's passionate about righteousness. Psalm 33, 4 through 5, For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So if you want to know what is God passionate about, he's passionate about righteousness. And what is righteousness? It's conforming to a standard and that standard would be himself, actually. Okay? Another one. Just a couple more here. Actually, I think this may be the last one. Is this the last one on your list? Okay. He's passionate about right worship. We saw this in another one of the verses, but this is a different way of looking at it. Deuteronomy twelve thirty one: You shall not worship the Lord, your God, in that way, in a wrong way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. He's talking to Israel about the people that are around them in the place where they're going to worship God in an abominable way. Abominable, abomination, is the strongest hate word you can come up with. 
So there's different words, synonyms for hate. Abomination is the strongest hate. And when we're thinking about what God's passionate about, don't look for just what he loves. Look what he hates. And there you see he hates idolatry. So, okay. What are the implications of God's passions when it comes to our decision making? Here's what I'd say first. Don't just look for what God explicitly says to do or not to do, and then assume you've uncovered what God's precepts are for your decision. Tell me what you think that means. What am I trying to say there? Matt? If it's like just simply, is this a bad, evil thing to do? And as long as it's not a bad, evil thing to do, then I'm good. Yeah. Yes. Yes, right. I'm going to put that verse down. That's good to... I don't remember the exact... Someone else, what am I trying to say? Where, how do you see this played out? I like Matt's illustration. Um, John. Oh, yeah. About a specific thing oh, yeah. Say, I should do that. God just told me to do that. Yes. Maybe scripture speaks to you in that way, <laughs> but I think there's a, a good chance you can misapply. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, Andrew and then Audrea. Don't look at narrative. <laughs> necessarily your instructions. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, so there's stories... And especially through the Old Testament, you hear you have these stories. You know, this is God speaking, having those written down. But in those stories, some of those events, we don't get God's commentary on what he thinks about what was done there. He expects you to apply the rest of what he said to that and understand whether that was good or not. Especially when you get into First and Second Samuel, you'll see David and the kings doing different things, and it's just like told matter-of-factly. And a lot of times, I have seen people say, "Well, David did it." Like, well, David committed, you know, adultery with Bathsheba too. <laughs> well, there we actually got a commentary on that one from God. But uh, Audria. Right. Or, you know, we try we knew that sex before marriage was wrong. But everything else doesn't say anything about that. So there was many a teenager who shipwrecked their life by That's that's an excellent point. Yes. Can, can I get an example of what John what were can, do you have like an example in your head of what you said? I want to understand that better. Uh, you know I got one. Mm-hmm. Whatever it opens to, I'm going to do that. And then they ask 
Yeah, I then think the next one you open up to right after that is go down and do likewise. Whatever I'll do is do it quickly. I think there's space. God is a, a, the universal being. He is the universe. He's created the universe. He exists because he spoke and his word is Jesus Christ on every page. I think there's space for God using what's in scripture to speak to us on a daily basis in a personal way. But I do think there's a high level of risk times in scripture where things go you could say yeah. I think you could say to yourself you almost say well, please, should I do this or that and then you look at the story of Abraham and Lot and Abraham says well if you go left I'll go right and if you go right I'll go left and that didn't actually help much if you apply that to your situation you basically yes. do whatever you want so I'm saying that there's a literal sense to Scripture that is an acceptable literal sense, and I even lean literal in all my interpretations. But there's a point at which you say, that was for Lot and for Abraham. And it may be useful in my decision-making, but I'm not sure it's the thing that should be the clincher. Yeah, I, I think there's a key idea here. Just a second. I think there's a key idea of what we're trying to say that is really important for us when using the Bible, when reading the Bible. You know, you, I don't know how often I hear a quick response from non-Christians or maybe people who loosely call themselves Christians of, well, there's so many interpretations. The problem is there is only one meaning in every text you're looking at. There are not multiple meanings. Let me give you what I mean by that. Um, when you, some literature is designed for a specific audience. If I was walking in the woods and I found on the ground a paper and I pick it up and it's a love letter and it says, it doesn't say the to who, it just is like the second page, and you read it, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> you know that when you read it, it wasn't written to you. You're not going to apply that to you, your circumstance, right? Now, you walk along in the woods, and you find another piece of paper, and it's a poem. And the person who wrote that poem may have had an original direction of what they thought about it, but a lot of times poetry is meant intentionally written to be make what you want of it. This is what I was thinking. Sometimes that's the case, but most text that is written has an audience in mind. You cannot just simply say, this is who I think it should be or what I think it should mean. I got my Amarin bill yesterday in the mail. I cannot call them and say, well, you said $162 today, which was my cheapest all year, by the way. <laughs> I can't just call them and say, no, it's $100. That's my, how I read this text. You can't do that, can you? There's a word for this, how to study, and it's not even just a word for the Bible. It's called hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation. And that is what we are called to do, is to rightly handle the word of God. 
so that when I'm reading Psalms or Proverbs, I treat it like the kind of literature it is. God superintended the authors to put together Psalms that are poetry. And you read it like it's poetry, and there's a way to read poetry rightly. You don't look at Psalm 91, and it says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, and say, well, it's a good thing I'm not going to be hit by a bird trap today while I'm walking along. It's poetry, right? Even, even whoever wrote that psalm, that one, didn't mean that he's literally going to be delivered from a bird trap. It's poetry, right? But when I get to, I get to Exodus chapter 10, 20, and I read the first 10 verses, it says, do not do this. Do not do this. And you could say, well, that was just Israel. However, the problem is when you get to, to Jesus in Matthew, he says he upholds every single commandment but one. So you know that that's got a broader audience. So we could go into that for a while, which it may be something we should consider doing in a future Sunday school series is let's talk about, well, how do I study? How do I know how to read narrative? How do I know how to read poetry? How do I know how to read and how do I rightly interpret it? Let's go there someday. Uh, Steve, you had your hand up earlier. Yeah. Um, what you just said, there's a song by Bread from the 70s, the band Bread. Maybe that's where you... Anyway, I'm just going to say, don't take scripture so literally that you assume that you know how to translate it. I mean, don't, it, it, don't read so much into it. That, yeah, th there's a right way to read it. And there is a, a wrong way to read it. And, but what we can't say, though, is that it's unintelligible, right? Otherwise, I don't think I'd be here today talking to you and become a pastor. If the Bible was not understandable, there's no point in me being a pastor or a Christian because then everything's up for grabs. But the Bible's written in human language using human grammar written so that it could be understood. But we have to understand that you got to be understand each each of these 66 books are written in different ways. You got to read it in the way it was intended and it's not like it's a hist a mystery. We have the same problem with the Supreme Court. Half of well <laughs> two thirds of the justices believe that we should interpret the constitution as the founding fathers intended it to be understood. The other third literally will tell you, I use that word, that's a nice pun there, that it is actually not meant to be read that way, but to adapt it to everybody's context and the meaning that applies in today. Well, that's loose, so loosey-goosey, it can mean anything tomorrow and something completely different the next day. We're God's children, and that makes us princes and queens, and we should all be rich. And there's a whole, like, name it and claim it sort of thing going on. Yeah. And they're not wrong about that, but rich in what is the next question. Yeah. And how do we apply it? What do we do with it? The next question after that. And does Lamborghini have anything to do with it? And I hope so. And I'm not sure that's the answer. And so there's a, there's a, 
progression of this application that yep. continues. And uh, that comes from, I think, not having a whole council of God's word in front of you. Yeah. But cherry picking it, one or two scriptures that seem to help your, your Yes, to build your case. So let me bring it back to where we're seeing. This is a good rabbit trail, but it's not the point of what I'm saying up here. Okay? Those are all good things, I agree. <laughs> the thing is, is what I'm saying is don't just look for the commands, because what we, what the rabbit trail is related to what we're saying. I'm saying look for more than just verbose commands about what to do and not to do. You need to be looking for God's passion. So let's go to the next point here. <laughs> it's still related. In order to know what God's passion about, you've got to read your Bible. That's what John's just saying, the whole council. Like, if you've not read this from cover to cover, I would encourage you to do that. January 1's coming. If you use the version app, they have a couple, several actually, reading plans that will help guide you through. And you can say, well, I can't do it in a year. Because if you want to read this through in one year, you can expect to read for about 20 minutes a day. You're like, oh, that's really hard. That's okay. I get that. They have two-year plans that'll help you get through it in two years. They even have a three-year plan. That's okay. Read it through because we're not going to know what God's passionate about unless you're reading his word. Now, you may come to church and hear it preached. That's how you're going to learn what God's passion is about as well. But I think it's super important that you are reading it to check your pastors, to check whoever's preaching. Is that really what God's word says? Right? You're not going to be able to know what God's passionate about if you're not in the word. Another decision-making implication. This one I, is uh, it's so funny because John and you and I were talking about this, and I was like, this is going to directly come up in Sunday school. God's overarching passions may elevate one precept over another. Now, that's a little tough one for some people. <laughs> You're like, wait, wait, wait a second. Um, the reason that is, think about this. How many know the story of David and the, the showbread? Okay, so God sit in the temple, in the tabernacle, there were certain things that the priests were to make every day. Uh, and, and certain things like keeping incense burning, and it was reserved only for use in the tabernacle. Like even that blend of incense was only to be used in the tabernacle. That bread was reserved only for the, the priestly activities. God says only. There's a day when David and his men are starving, and the priest Zadok, I think, allowed him to come in and take that bread. Jesus brings this up as he's talking and he challenges the Pharisees because they would use the Bible in this kind of way of, well, you, you need to do this and you need to do this. And Jesus points out to them, what about David and the showbread? And they'd actually, this was when I think the disciples are collecting weed on the way, right? On a Sabbath. And they're like, you're not supposed to do that. Well, they had been reading it in a way, not understanding what God's passion is about is. And what does Jesus say at the end of that? Man was made for the, sa- uh, I'm going to screw it up. Sabbath was made for the man, for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's, that's an example. Let me give you another one. Jesus says, 
if your donkey falls into the ravine, aren't you, are you on the Sabbath, are you going to let him die? No, you're going to work. The, the, the Pharisees took the word, you can't work, and they had to define what work meant. And that meant you couldn't lift a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath. They literally said, well, it must mean this many bushels. I don't know what the exact weight was. Well, that donkey's going to weigh more than what they allowed. And he's like, are you going to let it die? And they're like, no, I'm not going to let the donkey die. There are some precepts that God's passions will say, mm, this one at this point is more important to obey than this one. You're going to find yourself, when you're making decisions, when it will seem like, well, I know the word says to do this, the word says to do this, but these feel like they're coming in conflict. In that scenario is when you need to think about these passions. And, and, and uh, John gave a kind of a funny hypothetical that's pretty, it's kind of unrealistic for the scenario, but it was to help us understand, but I've seen real situations like this. What was it? It was like in a boat? charge of a boat like the captain, but you don't own the boat, like a bus driver. When you're a bus driver, you take the bus back without scratches, right? But you're also accountable for the souls on board, and uh, sometimes things happen in the world you don't get to control, and so I, the, the hypothetical I gave was the captain of the boat gets rammed by somebody else, accident or otherwise, and loses some passengers in that moment, and he's, in this hypothetical, he's got a decision to make. Do I use all the, res the uh, resources I have to get the safety equipment to the people and save their lives and lose my boat? Or do I take that five minutes of time and, and fuel I have and beach the boat and forget about the people? So he's, he's got a fiduciary responsibility to the company that runs the boat, and he's got a moral obligation to God to take care of the people under his charge. Yes. And the reason I gave him that is because that sounds like my life right now. <laughs> do, I, do I worry about the boat or do I worry about the people on the boat and which one takes precedence yes the question I ask. right it, it may I be like probe I'm assuming like do I pay these student loans or do I put food on the table yes exactly okay I have a fiduciary responsibility to do that but my kids I'm the provider of this family I've got to find a way so the principle of love and the principle of sanctity of life come into this, into this hypothetical situation, right? Now, it, you, these come up all the time. This is what counseling's for a lot of times because people are like, hey, I've got, I can't work through this decision. And it feels like they're in conflict. And I say, well, let's take a step back and let's think about what is God most passionate about in this situation because that may help us. I'm not saying it always gets it super clear, but it at least drives us to it, to under better understanding. Okay, so we've talked about over the last four or five weeks now, God's will and how to understand it theologically from the Bible so that we can make better decisions. We've laid a foundation. And so when you think about that big circle about God's will, we realize, oh, that's quite a fuzzy word. That means a lot of things. And we've said it means his precepts, his plans, his providence, and his passions. Let me pull this together and give you three overall implications for decision-making as it relates to God's will. So first of all, God's precepts should be what inform our decision-making. 
okay? The, the do's and don'ts, the commands, those kinds of things should inform our decision-making. In other words, if you haven't been thinking about what God has to say about this decision, then you're not trying to make a decision really in God's will. You're just trying to do what you'd like to do. Thirdly, I don't know why I didn't put these underneath each other, but thirdly, God's passions should be what support or drive our decision-making. So the, the commands, those parts inform the details, but the undergirding of it all has got to be God's passions, things like his glory, love for others. And thirdly, God's plans and providence should give us hope and peace in our wise decision-making. Chew on that for a little bit and tell me what you think about that last one. Think about God's plans. We looked at verses that said God works according, all things according to the counsel of his will. We looked at verses that talked about how God has made plans and no one will thwart his purposes, right? Those are his plans, but I'm saying here, and we, when we talk about providence, we saw that he guides everything to his ends. How do those truths give us hope and peace in decision-making? Todd. Because we automatically go to, well, this doesn't make sense. Why would they do this? this I just don't understand. Like, they're taking such great risks. Um, and they may be completely in line with God's precepts. And mm -hmm. the, yeah. The wise decision, we just don't, we're not them. We're, we're totally different. We're in a different position. Place, yeah. Like, whatever. Like, so I think the hope and peace comes about knowing that you've, you've followed God's plan. Well, you, you've made your wise decision making in, in your lives. And, and so the peace and hope is that God's going to work through that, knowing that, yeah, there might be some risk involved. Yeah. But if you're focused on his precepts and, and going through this process, the peace is that he's going he's gonna to take care of it. It's, yes. It's, yeah. Whether whether this person or this group or whatever agree with it or not, and that's hard for us to detach from because you know where do you draw the line of how can this be? Yep. Um, so I think where I'm going with that is that we get in our own heads too much. We're not we're not thinking about it in a way that God would be thinking about it for us or for them. Yeah. Um, and so we overcomplicate. We, I think that's the biggest thing. We're, we're too busy worrying about how is this going to impact my life instead of how is this going to impact God's 
plan for my life. Yeah, yeah. And then that can totally change. You know, I think yeah. about every every decision throughout life daily. Every day. I mean, think about God's his creation, our bodies, his temple. Like, how does that drive my decision making throughout every single day? Um, and that can be overwhelming, but if you're just if you're focused on God, on his precepts, those things aren't going to distract you. Yeah. But we just got to get out of our own way. Good. Did I see another hand? A charity. Understanding of the sovereignty of God is has truly like saved saved my life. Mm-hmm. As a diehard legalist, precept upon precept, I've got to make I've got to absolutely it was this dot mentality. And I heard James McDonald uh, preach on this and teach on this with this um, decision making, this dot mentality. God has this dot perfect plan for me. That's how I was raised. Yep. And you have to land on that dot. And he was talking about, but then you find out later, he said, if you have that, he goes, you find out later, like you're sitting there thinking, well, what if I didn't like the perfect dot spouse that God has for me, right? If I find out later that maybe that's not the dot God had for me, uh-huh. then I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, my spouse is now married to somebody else, and I have kids walking around a mall that are supposed to belong to me. Like, there's all like anxiety. I, this is not an exaggeration. I have had people tell me, it's okay for me to then get, my, get divorced, because that wasn't right. the plan God had for my life. And there's all this, and he was talking about, then it creates all this anxiety to try to land on a dot, and I think understanding that God is is not, it's not about a dot. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's bigger than that. Yes. And and yes, like I've talked with so many people who have chosen to go against God's precepts and marry, you know, out of, you know, get married to someone that is not a believer. And clearly there's hard things that come, but he's still. Yes. Those plans, yes, you're still within them. sovereign and providential. And, and you can rest in that. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> that'd be uh, kind of, I can make some fun stand up about that one. Um, so that, that idea of dot, it's coming back to the very beginning. I'll just, that idea, the way of describing God's will and understanding it, there's a very good book. If you really want to go deep into this, it's a big thick book called Decision Making the Will of God by Gary Friesen. He's the one that really kind of, kind of came up with a good way of talking about how people talk about the perfect plan for my life and call it the dot. And a helpful book if you're like, I really want to study this deeper. Let me just, we're almost out of, we're out of time, but let me just give you this last piece here. So back to our, our diagram here. If I say I want to be in the center of his will, I don't mean the dot. I mean living just inside that center circle. And I think I'll steal a little of my thunder when it comes to the actual decision-making method. You can roam around inside that little circle. There's freedom, people. I think that's what Todd's getting at. There's freedom within that center circle. Okay? Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. God, I, I thank you so much that you love us, that you care for us, that you care about the details, you care about these decisions that seem big and even the decisions that seem small. 
you are the infinite king of the universe. You hold all things together, and yet you care about every little detail of my life. And you're good, and you've promised that for those who are in Christ Jesus, all things work together for good. And we know that that good means a long-term goal of shaping us into the image of Christ, and you're going to direct us toward that end. We thank you that we can rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.